It's go time. Welcome, everyone, to Quick Kicks here on Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon with a very special guest who, if you've ever been to Three Down Nation, you probably already know who he is. But just for the unedified, it is J.C. Abbott joining us, and we're going to be talking a lot of CFL today. Happy to be here, Don. Always love being on the podcast. It's awesome to have you back. Love the insight and uh, the coverage that is provided by Three Down. Uh, Fantastic job with free agency. I'm sure a lot of people are curious, how was it that the content kept coming out? What type of links, what type of connections do you have to make to keep up with what's going on on that February the 14th? Well, I mean, it's really a multiple week long process, right? And it starts before the negotiating window opened on February 5th. So we meet together as a group, we sort of lay out our top free agents, that's when we do that ranking process and then begin identifying, okay, who are these guys' guys' agents, right? Who do we have to talk to? Do I have connections with them to reach out? Who are the big storylines that we're going to have to chase down? And then over those two weeks where teams are openly negotiating, it's basically constant communication with sources and and talking to people, trying to see how these negotiations go. Because at this stage, with that negotiating window, a lot of the big contracts are agreed to ahead of that February 14th um, opening day, right? So Duncan Hodge do a fantastic job uh, on that side of things. They're far more advanced and, and veteran uh, than I am. I'm just beginning to learn the ropes and, and watching how they do it, but they are on top of it right from the very beginning, breaking those stories a week in advance. So when we get to free agency day, a lot of the heavy lifting is done. Then it's just sort of spilling everything out. And and there are some stories that we break on that day, but just having the constant uh, uh, content out there, running the live blog is basically nonstop right from the time free agency opens for about eight hours there. I'm right in front of the laptop without a lunch trying to get off, off every signing. Uh, so that's my my saga things on that specific day while uh, Duncan Hodge keep doing their digging and break a couple more signings. Um, something like the Greg Ellingson signing was, was dropped by them on that day. So it really is a long collaborative process. There's a lot of communication between the three of us, you know, in our private group chat, you know, identifying, oh, I'm hearing this over here. Have you heard that? Can you check with this guy? And then eventually it all culminates into these stories that you guys see when free agency opens. So when you talk about the collaboration, I guess within your group, obviously you lay out a game plan, as you say, but what about outside? Who out there are you trying to reach out to to say, hey, can you confirm this? Is it an agent? Is it the team? Is it a GM? Is it because there is a myriad of activity going on? And you, I wonder if sometimes if you think you're spinning in 16 different directions at once, trying to keep up with all of your uh, connections. Certainly. I mean, you never want to reveal a source, but you've hit all the right boxes, right? Sometimes you're talking to players directly. Sometimes you're talking to agents. Sometimes you're talking about other agents who are have heard things about other clients through the grapevine. You may be talking to people within the teams themselves. There's all sorts of different sources that you can go to get, to get this information confirmed. And generally, you want to hear it from multiple sources before you report it, unless, of course, it's a really, really close source to, to the contract, the player himself saying, hey, I've just signed the deal. Here's the picture of the contract. You can put it out now. Um, but there's... Uh, there's all sorts of different avenues that you go about um, finding this information and and building these relationships over the span of years, really, in order to to have some trust developed. So they go to you first instead of someone else. That's, I think, the operative word is trust. You just can't call on these people and say, hi, I'm Three Down Nation. We need this information. They have to know who you are. Basically, you've been vetted by them with past dealings. Exactly. And and it's a fine line, right? You don't want to be manipulated because sometimes that can happen, right? Everyone's got their own storyline they're trying to get across and everyone 
wants to manipulate a market, the market in a certain way. So you don't want to be taken advantage of. But at the same time, you want to protect your sources. You want to protect your relationships with them so you can you know, win in the long game. So we often know a lot more than what we are putting out there, right? Because there are things that we can't share because they've been told to us off the record in confidence. Uh, and eventually, at a certain stage, sometimes that comes out and, and we're able to publish that. But it is information aggregation throughout that entire process to hopefully share a few nuggets with the public. And you talk about, yeah, the whole business of off the record, and that is a key element. And sometimes I know from my experience in media, they'll put out a balloon and see what you do with it. And if you don't do anything with it, then they feel, okay, I can trust this guy because they didn't. Yeah. And it's tough, right? There are times the reality of the situation, it's emotional. And sometimes, quite frankly, you haven't done anything wrong, but just the nature of the business, right? There are going to be people who are upset. I had my own experience with it, this free agency cycle, you know, Darnell Sankey and, and his representative were not uh, overly happy with my report that he turned down a, an offer from the Riders. It was all factual, right? I stand by that report. Um, he's now in the XFL in part because of the the lack of interest he was receiving on the CFL market. And so it was a very heated situation. I understand where people are coming from when that happens, right? But it's just the the risk that you take in this business, unfortunately, right? Sometimes people are more upset at you when you're right than when you're wrong. Let's talk about Darnell Sankey. He, in your story, turned down what would be a very lucrative deal from the Rough Riders. He goes to the XF. How much of a pay cut is he taking to do this or is he? I don't know the specifics of his XFL deal. So I don't know if he's receiving a little bit extra. I know for some quarterbacks, they've they've gone a bit higher. The standard player contract for the XFL is fifty thousand U.S. dollars over the course of a ten game season, right? So it works out to five grand per game. Plus, there's a thousand dollar win bonus attached to to each game. So hypothetically, if you ran the table, you had a perfect uh, season. In a 10-game regular season, you could earn 60000 US dollars. So if that's what he's receiving, and again, I don't know the details of his XFL contract or if it's any different than the standard, but if he's getting what's standard, he would be taking a significant pay cut because even if you factor in the the exchange rate, that's much less than the deal he uh, he had on the table from the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. So it's a situation I think sometimes, and and we see this in years like this, uh, where there's a little bit of a cap pinch because the minimum salary went up, and I don't think uh, enough people recognize just how significant that is for the financial situation in the league because you're paying basically every single guy on your roster 5000 more than you were before and, the, and even though the salary cap has gone up under the new CBA that's the bulk of your roster that's getting uh, a pay bump so guys who aren't necessarily in the top tier category like quarterbacks are going to have to get shaved a little bit in the process and i think Darnell Sankey maybe gambled a bit on what he thought his value would be on the open market after leading the league in tackles um, for for two years and and unfortunately was a little bit sideswiped by the fact that that I don't think teams necessarily value him as highly as other linebackers simply because he's a bigger body who's not quite as versatile. Taking that chance, maybe this is just speculation, but maybe did he get upset and say, look, I'm going to take my game and I'm going to take it to the XFL and not wait out to see if there was anything more coming from the CFL where he could have made more money. Yeah, I I suspect he he made the decision rather quickly. It's it's my understanding that at least at the time of free agency's opening, he didn't have any other CFL offers, right? Throughout the negotiating window, uh what he turned down from the Riders was essentially the only real offer on the table. Now, he could have sat around twiddling his thumbs waiting for something uh, at, a, at a more discounted rate than than what he was hoping to receive, but he jumps on the XFL early. Obviously, they're they're start they started play, play this week, and the benefit of that for him is is quite frankly, I don't think it's a terrible move. He's more of an American style linebacker. 
He's 28, which as a 28-year-old player playing in the CFL, you're never going to get an NFL opportunity that's basically off the table for you at that stage, right? You're too old. Coming out of one of these spring leagues, I think the situation's a little bit different because of the timing of it, right? NFL teams are filling sort of the back end of their training camp roster when they need the last handful of spots to fill out their 90-man they're just reaching into these spring leagues because they know these guys are in game shape and ready to go and they won't embarrass themselves in training camp. So the USFL last year, for example, in their first season, I think had 52 guys signed to NFL rosters because it was right before training camp. Now, only one of those guys made an NFL active roster. And I think another 10 made practice squads, but that is a massive difference compared to the CFL where I think 12 guys got signed to the NFL last year, right? So the NFL is much more likely to pull just anybody who has a a little bit of success in these spring leagues onto a training camp roster. And I don't think it gives you a better shot of making the team, but you'll cash a training camp uh, paycheck. You get an opportunity to possibly test out the NFL. And if that happens, you're let out of your XFL contract early and you could potentially sign back in the CFL for the the backstretch of the season after some injuries happen and some spaces open up. That's a fascinating way to go about it. My argument has always been if you're playing spring league, whether it's XFL or USFL, where are you going to have the energy to go to an NFL camp and try to make a roster? I've always felt that the CFL, because it plays across from the NFL, you've got time to recoup get ready for the next season, and then go after it if your opportunity avails. It's a lot of football in a very short space of time. I I don't think it's necessarily the best thing for the athlete. I'm on the same page as you in that regard. Unfortunately, the reality is just because of the timing, you are wasting some time. You're essentially burning a full year of NFL potential when you make the choice to, to play in the CFL instead. Because even though you're allowed to sign in the NFL, basically once the season ends, right, that window opens, we have a, um, you know, any player, no matter what their contract can go at this stage, you have to wait a full calendar year till the next season. You can't jump in right after the CFL season ends and play that same year in the NFL. You have to wait. So we've seen guys, and and there was recently an interview with Liram Hiralahu, the former um, kicker for, for the Ticats, a Canadian guy, had tremendous success in the CFL, has been bouncing around the NFL for the last number of years, played a little bit with the Dallas Cowboys. He hasn't had a a, a contract since training camp, and he was on the radio recently, and he was asked, would you come back to the CFL? And he said, no, because if I do so, or at this stage, I'm still fighting for the NFL. If I do so, I burn a full year because I might be on a bad team, and we're done in October. That's week six of the NFL season. I would have 10 more weeks where people might need kickers, but they can't sign me. They have to wait. So I want to be there ready if there's an opportunity that calls. And unfortunately for guys like that, the CFL is just not a – they don't view it as a, as a good bet because they're burning more of their NFL opportunities to do it. Whereas if you go to the USFL or XFL, straight out of the season, right into training camp, and you have that opportunity to play a full NFL season. I can understand his point as a kicker, but the violence that you endure in a season is nothing compared to a linebacker or an offensive lineman. How, in their minds, do they rationalize playing a 10-game schedule with all the knocks and injuries that you pick up and then move over to NFL camps to see if you can make the roster? I I just don't get it. I'd rather have, if I'm going to lose a year, okay, I'll play in the CFL, and then I can recover and make it to the NFL. And at least there is a relationship there that the CFL will give you the window. The other thing, too, is that the NFL does take a note of the top players from the CFL. And as you mentioned, more than a handful make it. Yeah, I think if you're getting signed to the NFL out of the CFL, you're probably more likely to stick on a roster than you are coming out of the USFL or XFL. There's a lot more volume of players getting signed out of those leagues, but 
the a lower percentage of those players stick around than the ones that come out of the CFL. You know, we might have 12 players signed in a year and nine of them will stick in some capacity, right? That's a that's pretty good odds because when teams are making those those reserve future signings for next season, if you're investing that early on a player, it's because you really like him, right? Versus the USFL XFL dynamic, which is just hey. We need 10 linebackers for training camp. We have nine right now. We need to find a guy who's the nearest dude in shape. And you you grab a guy off the local USFL or XFL roster because you know he's not going to embarrass himself. He's going to be a a functional camp body for you. But you don't necessarily see him projecting onto the roster, right? He's a means to an end for you. It's difficult to rationalize how, how you do that much football the the struggles that would it would put your body through but these guys make those rationalizations all the time right just to be able to play that sport so well, you and i can look at it sort of objectively from up on high and say oh man that's gonna wear you out really quick these are top level athletes who are dedicated to this dream they've sacrificed their bodies and they're willing to do just about anything to make it. So they're a little bit blind, I think, to some of those those details. Maybe as you get older, you realize, hey, I shouldn't have put my body through that. I need a little bit more, more recovery. But if you're a young guy trying to scratch and claw and, and get where you want to be, I think you look past that. I really do. I don't know if it's the right decision. It's certainly not the one I would make. But then again, I don't have the physique or the athletic ability to be put in that situation. Just to finish with Darnell Sankey, if if everything goes to plan, 18-game CFL season, 10-game XFL season, and 17-game NFL season, all within roughly 18 months. Yeah, I mean, that would be, I think, a dream scenario for him, but maybe a nightmare as well. Um, I, I don't think... That'll be what happens. I don't see him sticking on an NFL roster, but I'm certain that's his greatest hope going down there. Certainly with the pay cut he's taking, he's looking for some way to recoup that cash eventually and trying to get into an NFL camp. That would be one way. Now, talking about cash, free agency, of course, Winnipeg went high and hard for a receiver they once had and brought him back into the fold, and that's Kenny Lawler. I think it's a great move for Winnipeg, right? We saw what Lawler was able to do when he was with them before. They're familiar with him. The biggest thing for me is you have Dalton Schoen coming off this fantastic rookie season, just lit the league on fire, legging in both receiving yards and touchdowns and average yards per catch. It was so dynamic in the slot for them. And then he goes, and the NFL doesn't take him, right? He gets a couple workouts, they decide, yeah, he's more of a CFL body. We don't think he can play on the line, right? He's benefiting from the waggle. I don't know if that's necessarily the correct determination, but it's certainly the Bombers' benefit because they get him back now for another season. And you have to expect when you have a player like that who had such a dynamic first season, the teams are going to be grinding the tape in the offseason, finding ways to take away his opportunities, to cover him up, to make sure that doesn't happen again. And if the Bombers had had stood pat, I think there was a good chance that defenses were going to be able to adjust to Dalton Schoen. But what they've done is they've gone out and they've taken what a lot of people believe is the best receiver in the CFL in terms of his skill set and his ability and said, hey, we're going to pay a bunch of money to grab him and then pair him up with Dalton Schoen. Then we'll bring back Rashid Bailey, who had almost 900 yards last season uh, in a complimentary role. We'll have him back on a discount price as well. You have to worry about Lawler taking the top off your defense and and hauling down the 50-50 ball down the rail. So you can't formulate your game plan exclusively around Schoen. So those two are going to have a really symbiotic relationship and open up a bunch of stuff for each other because defenses aren't going to be able to clue in on one or the other in their game plans, somebody is going to break free. And so I think it's a really smart move by Winnipeg to ensure that they can keep building offensively with that receiving core. And Zach Kolaris is always going to have some sort of dynamic receiver open down the field for him. 
people criticize sort of spending money on receivers, that's why you do it, right? Because you now have the weapons downfield for your quarterback where he can throw it all around the yard and not have to worry about guys being able to make the play because he's got those athletes who can do it. Think of the Blue Bombers lineup with Zach Kolaris, and you got Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat, Adam Big Hill. There's a lot of big money contracts already on that team. It, it was a surprise to some that they had the money and the wherewithal to fit within the cap, a guy like Kenny Lawler. Yeah, on that regard, they didn't add much else. Right. So he is a huge addition, but you have to think of some of the players they lost. Obviously, they made the determination to go with Lawler and go out and get him instead of bringing back Greg Ellingson. So that's one contract that you're taking off the books. The other one is Michael Couture as the starting center. They let him walk because they had Chris Kalansky play. Kalinkowski, sorry, not Kalansky. Kalinkowski played some excellent minutes for them last year. And he's at basically half price. So they're bringing him in They're They've got a discount rate at that position. They also let Casey sales go. They couldn't pay him. So you're losing that contract sort of taking bits and pieces, the guys they let walk and then translating that into just one big contract. So in terms of their cap situation, I don't think they're as bad as some people might expect. They're paying a high prices for those guys that you mentioned, but not absurdly so, and it's not like they went on a spending spree. They brought in one big contract after losing a couple of guys. Once you amalgamate those moves, it all makes sense. Hamilton Tiger Cats, the team that hosts this year's Grey Cup, almost turned over the their defense completely and, of course, made a lot of big signings on offense. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about uh, spending sprees, that's the one, right? It's almost an entirely different team that's going to be trotted out there next year and and big time additions basically across the board. You know, Jameer Thurman, Jagger Davis coming back, Casey Sales, who we just mentioned, Kwaku Botang. And then on offense, you know, Joel Figueroa, I think has been uh, reported as the new highest paid American offensive lineman in the league. I think it was Farhan Lalji who had that report and Duke Williams at receiver. Also James Butler at running back, who I got to watch out here in BC a whole bunch. Uh, that's a lot of of weapons on both sides of the ball, right? Really dynamic players. It's going to be interesting to see how they all mold together, but clearly signing Bo Levi Mitchell was a big selling point for a lot of these free agents. And they now see Hamilton as the favorite in the East, right? You've got that quarterback. You know, it's a weaker division. If we can add some talent around him, veteran talent, Maybe they can make a run at this great cup. And so I'd be interested to see what they're paying all these guys. I'm sure I'll do an analysis a little bit later. I don't know all the details quite yet. Uh, I'm sure there's probably not much more money to spend. They made some big cuts in the defensive backfield, you know, letting a guy like Cariel Brooks go a year early, who was an all-star caliber halfback. They let Jamal roll uh, walk. So clearly their strategy is we're going to spend big everywhere else. And we're going rookies in the secondary. And we'll have to see how that works out for them. They're also going to have some interesting characters in the locker room. I mean, Simone Lawrence, they re-signed. I still think he's a real team leader. Toss into that fray. You've got Chris Edwards and, of course, Dekeel Williams. Yeah, I mean, the Chris Edwards one is the one who that surprised me a little bit. Because he's, of course, famous for fighting Ticats. I mean that literally. I mean, he climbed into the stands and threw punches with uh, Ticats fans after the East final uh, two years ago now, right? So obviously that was precipitated by some some bad behavior from the fans themselves. So there's two parts to that story, obviously. That's an interesting dynamic to bring in that guy who actually got in a punch up with your fan base. It's showing that on both sides, the Ticats are willing to do just about anything to get over this hump and finally break their Grey Cup drought at home. And Chris Edwards likes the situation enough and, and whatever they're paying him that he's willing to come into that fire because I'm sure the fans are going to let him know about it. Even though he's wearing the right colors now, he's going to get a little bit of ribbing on the sidelines, I'm sure. Orlando Steinhauer, there must be a massive strength of character if you're going to rein all this in. Yeah, it's going to be a huge test for him, right? I mean, he's 
reined in guys before. He's had characters like Brandon Banks on that roster for a long time, who we all know, fantastic athlete, incredible skill, you know, potential future Hall of Famer, has been known to throw a temper tantrum every now and again. We saw it this year with the Toronto Argonauts, them struggling to ring him him in. And really, Steinhauer did a fantastic job during his time of keeping that sort of thing under wraps and, and dealing with those dynamics. So he's going to be tested, right, with Edwards and Duke Williams. He's got to make sure there's no more spitting, no more helmet throwing, nobody's climbing in the stands. It's going to be a test, but he seems like a guy who's well-equipped to do that based on his past history. Now, they do have to get past the defending Grey Cup champs, the Toronto Argonauts. Now, the Argonauts were relatively quiet on free agent Tuesday. Yeah, their biggest additions to me are on defense because they made some, I think, quiet moves, right? They got younger at important positions and were willing to let some of these big-time veterans that they signed last year in the hopes of winning a Grey Cup walk, right? They didn't bring back Jagger Davis, who was statistically all right last season, but I, I thought was not quite as dominant as what he'd been in the past. They released Brandon Banks early. He had some nice flashes last season, but again, was another guy who was past it. They did bring back Andrew Harris, but I think he'll be in a more complimentary role this season. And then they added two guys who I think are among the brightest young players in the league right now. Darius Pickett becomes Chris Edwards' replacement at strong side linebacker. He's 26 and was absolutely sensational for the Alouettes last season. He's a big, big add for them. And then they make Falern Oramalade from Calgary the highest paid defensive end in the league. Yeah, defensive lineman in the league, I believe. He's a dude who did not get nearly enough love for how good he was last season. Everyone talked about the linebackers in Calgary, rightfully so, Cameron Judge and Jameer Thurman. Everyone talked about Sean Lemon, who goes out there and has 14 sacks and becomes the West nominee for most outstanding defensive player. But Oramalage, quietly, according to, to some of the analytics guys like Derek Taylor, led the league in pressures. He can drop into coverage, right? He can do all sorts of versatile things on your defense. He's extremely powerful. And he basically was the best player on the field in the West semifinal against BC, in my opinion. Watching that game, the Lions were very lucky he didn't wreck it for him. Absolutely destroyed their offensive line. Two sacks, a forced fumble in that game. He's a player who's still just 27 who's been hurt for much of the beginning of his career and is finally healthy, an absolute standout in college and has a huge upward trajectory. And Toronto hasn't had much pass rush off the edge in recent years. They were a little bit better better last season with Jagger Davis and Shane Ray, but he's bringing an entirely different element to that team now. And I think he's going to be an all-star next season. I really do. He has that capability and people around the league are starting to clue in to what he's capable of. McLeod Bethel-Thompson has put out a note. The uh, New Orleans Breakers of the USFL have signed him. For those who are unaware, his family situation has changed uh, rather dramatically in the sense that his wife, Janika Hodges, uh, is a very successful woman. She was a poet, a creator, an artist. She did a bunch of things. And now she's the head writer for a new Marvel series on Disney plus. So she's cashing the big bucks down there in California about to take her starring turn in, in Hollywood. And so that's put a lot of stress on the family family situation, right? They have a young daughter. It was really tough last year with his wife's workload for him to be up in Canada for six months we saw it. He went immediately back down home after the Grey Cup. He wasn't even at the Grey Cup uh, celebration in downtown Toronto. He attended via Zoom because he had to get home to his family so quickly. So he wants to keep playing, but it's that uncomfortable moment in the athlete's life where he's, my wife has held down the fort for so long while I've been chasing my dream. It might be time for me to repay that a little bit. And so he's considering U.S. options because 
he wants to be able to keep playing and be there to support his family. So he's between a rock and a hard place. I, I sympathize with the decision that he's having to make. It's not an easy one, right? And as the R goes, now you need to plan uh, for the future. And and we've seen sort of whispers that they're doing that. You know, Car- Kogi Fajardo mentioned that the Argos were one of the teams that was heavily pursuing him in free agency. And you don't do that if you think McLeod Bethel Thompson's coming back because you have Chad Kelly there as the backup potential uh, starter of the future. Does that bring in Dane Evans? I think that's a natural landing spot for him right now. And unfortunately, it's a bit of a strange situation for Dane Evans as a player. He's going to be stuck in limbo for a while because the reality is him and his agent, when they negotiated his contract with Hamilton, didn't include any offseason money in that. And we talk all the time, guys get released in the offseason, and you hear he was released before a bonus. And a lot of fans come out and they go, how dare they? You know, why would they steal this man's money? He was owed a bonus, pay it to him. Why would you do that? Well, the reality is the why you put those bonuses and contracts in the offseason is to force teams to release you. It's a it's a financial incentive. If they pay it to you, they're committed to you. They've invested that money. It's on the salary cap. That's done. If they think you're not going to be on the team next year, if you're a guy that they might cut or they want to move on from, then you place that bonus in the offseason strategically so they have to release you at a time when there's lots of jobs open and you can maximize your money elsewhere. So it's actually to protect the player and force a release, right? Commitment or release. That's what you want from the bonus. Dane Evans doesn't have that in his contract. He doesn't get paid a cent until he reports to training camp. So that means that the Hamilton Tiger Cats have no incentive whatsoever to rush this decision. And unfortunately, they don't have much leverage either because every team in the league knows they can't pay Dane Evans the $400,000 he's, he's owed next season. They have to get rid of him. So every other team is sitting back, waiting, saying, okay, they're going to have to cut him the day before training camp anyway. Why would I go out and pay something for it? So what Hamilton's sort of waiting for is for multiple teams to be interested, start dangling a draft pick or two in the next couple of weeks in front of them so they can get something back for Evans. But it's not going to be a rushed process because there's no incentive from any party to do it like that. Toronto is comfortable with Chad Kelly as a starter, but they want that competition. I imagine that's where Dang Evans ends up going at this stage. It's the natural fit. He's the only sort of established starter left on the market, and he can go to Toronto in in a 1B role, veteran backup bridge guy, however you want to call it, and compete with Kelly for that job. But it's going to take some time for that that deal to be put in place. You mentioned Cody Fajardo being courted by the Argonauts. Of course, Fajardo winds up in Montreal and Trevor Harris goes to Saskatchewan. So the sevens swap. I think the Riders are going to be a better team with Trevor Harris at quarterback than they were with Cody Fajardo. Simply his ability to get the ball out quickly and efficiently is going to help that offensive line as they try to get better next year. I think you'll see improvements because of it. Cody Fajardo is still as a starting caliber quarterback. I think going to a place like Montreal where he's not necessarily the focus of attention is going to be good for him because he struggled a little bit under the spotlight in Regina. I think he, he's a very personable guy, well-meaning, but had a tendency to stick his foot in his mouth a little bit because he was so open and, and not necessarily as guarded as maybe he should have been in the media. And so things snowballed for him and and it became a bad situation. He's not going to have that happen in Montreal. It's going to be much calmer, much less scrutiny. Not to say that that there's not media interest or or good journalists there who are going to ask, but the spotlight's not as bright as it is in Regina where you've got several radio stations, the newspaper, every outlet in the country wanting to gain a piece of, of that Raggers fandom, right? I'll be interested to see how he functions with Jason Moss this time around. Because the two have, I think, a good relationship. But I'm not convinced that they're a good schematic fit for one another. So that's my main question about the situation with the Alouettes. Is Jason Moss going to be able to adapt 
what he likes to do to best fit Fajardo, because I think in the two seasons they worked together with the Riders, he didn't quite fulfill that need. And so that's why we saw Fajardo take a step back. My take on it is that Moss now is going to go with the guy that he was been working with for a couple of years versus the guy that maybe he had a relationship. Well, and Harris was with Moss when he was in Edmonton as well for a season and had a fantastic season. I think all other things being equal, Trevor Harris wanted to be back in Montreal. He wanted to play for Jason Moss and he wanted to play for Danny Machocha. Unfortunately, the timing of everything that happened with the ownership situation, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later, he wasn't able to because he felt like he had to make a commitment to a team one way or another, basically within the first day of the negotiating window opening, because as the quarterback, you are a big part of the recruiting push to get other players in. So once that February 5th window came around, he had to make a decision. And at that stage, Montreal was not being allowed to spend any money. So Trevor Harris said, I can't have this uncertainty. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to move on. And that's how he ends up in the Riders' lap. Cody Fajardo didn't necessarily have the same options available to him. There was really only one spot where he could be a legitimate starter. And so he was willing to handle some of that uncertainty over the last the last little bit to end up in Montreal. The sense I get from Moss and Fajardo is they're very comfortable with one another. I don't think it's an issue of a personal relationship. They don't dislike each other. I don't think they f- they're fighting or anything like that. Moss, in fact, in many of his public comments, has defended Fajardo and said, you know, last season was not his fault. You guys don't know what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, the injury was really the biggest factor. He's got good football left in the tank. So I don't think their personal relationship is as poor as people I've maybe speculated it has been. What I do question, again, is is the schematic fit, right? Jason Moss was a pocket passer who got the ball out of his hands quick. He's had success with those types of quarterbacks in the past. Trevor Harris was exactly the mold when they play when they were together in Edmonton. He had a tremendous season because he fit exactly what Jason Moss wanted to do. He's he's done that in Ottawa. He's done that in in Toronto. Fajardo is a different style of guy, right? He's mobile. He's a dual threat. You've got to move him outside the pocket. He's got a long release, so you've got to adjust your offense accordingly. And I don't know if Moss maximized that in the two seasons he was in Saskatchewan. And we can point to the injury this past year as as a big reason why uh, things fell off. And I think that's fair. He was not as mobile as he was in the past, made the offensive line problems worse. But he declined in 2021 too, right? Like that was not a tremendous season from Cody Fajardo. It was certainly not the same numbers he put up when he was with Stephen McAdoo in 2019 and was the West division nominee for, for MLP. Clearly there's something systemic that caused him to have a regression. And in my mind, I don't know if Moss maximized his abilities. So what I'll be interested to see in Montreal is whether he had a plan last year to maximize the abilities and and adjustments. And it got screwed up by the injury. And now with a better offensive line in Montreal, he's going to be able to fully enact it and it'll blossom. Or if it will be more of the same that he was running in Saskatchewan and Fajardo still doesn't look like the guy he used to be. British Columbia Lions, their starting quarterback is south of the border. Nathan Rourke, Vernon Adams Jr., He's the man of note. Do they do as well with him at the helm? I think anyone who who reads my stuff knows that I'm not the biggest Vernon Adams Jr. fan. Uh, Vernon Adams Jr. is not my biggest fan. Uh, <laughs> we are uh, we are cordial in press conferences now, which is an improvement from our previous relationship. I think he will have a better season this year than he did in or then he showed in his starts last season because he'll have a full uh, off season to learn the offense and to have it be adapted to him. 
that receiving core is still extremely talented. They were able to hang on to Dominic Rhymes, which was huge. So he's going to have weapons. He's going to have time to have that offense molded around him, right? That'll be the test for Jordan Maximic is if he can take what he did for Nathan Rourke, making that offense picture perfect for him and adapt it to VA's skill set. He's still too inconsistent in my mind. You're going to have games where he is off, right? He showed that when he was in Montreal, where he have stretches where he looked like he was lighting the world on fire and then other stretches throwing bad picks and, and doing all sorts of stuff. That is the VA game. He is a bit chaotic. It's a roller coaster. And you take the high end because it is so high, but the low end is going to hurt you. And so in my mind, the lines do take a step back because not only is VA not as good a quarterback as Nathan Rourke, which I don't think is a hot take at all, they're also paying him more. They don't have as much money to spend on other areas, and they've downgraded at quarterback. To me, that's just not a recipe for the same level of success. The Lions are still a good team, don't get me wrong, but I don't think they are the number two team in the West Division like they were last year. They're going to take a step back. You're putting Calgary at number two? Oh, that's that's a tough question. I, I, I'm not going to rank the teams right now because – I I think Calgary is is sort of on decline as well. And I've said this year after year, and they keep proving me wrong. At some point, I'm going to be right, so I'm going to keep saying it. I just don't know how to keep managing to do it. I have questions about maybe how they've handled free agency. I mean, they lost a lot of guys. We talked about Ormalade and Jameer Thurman, guys like that, high price guys, and they haven't brought in a whole bunch to replace them. They, they got Julian Hauser. And Micah Awe, those are the only two players they've signed in free agency at this stage. Now, they've never been big spenders on the open market, but you have to think there's some cap room there. It's it's tough for me to imagine that they don't have at least a little bit of space to play with, and I'm, I'm wondering why they're not making another move here. They're going to be what they always are, and, and that's you know well-coached, well-managed. At some point, they are going to have to have a decline and I think Saskatchewan got better this offseason. I really do. I don't necessarily know if they'll be able to challenge for that number two spot, but Trevor Harris makes them much better, and he's a top-tier quarterback in this league. The Edmonton Elks, I think, got dramatically better as well this offseason, and we've seen the sort of year-two bump that Chris Jones typically has with his teams last year was absolutely atrocious, but he found a lot of pieces and he's added a lot of players, right? That receiving core is absolutely lower at this stage. You know, I've never been a big Taylor Cornelius guy, but he doesn't have to be accurate because he's got a bunch of dudes who can catch the ball anywhere he throws it. So he just has to close his eyes and throw it up. And Eugene Lewis is going to haul it down. Uh, They have a good running back now. I think they've got a solid offensive line. It sort of got lost in the wash with all the se- the signings that have happened uh, in the last little bit with free agency. But they got AC Leonard and Luches Purifoy off the scrap heap, two guys that are very good players who got released by their clubs before free agency, and they signed at at pretty discounted rates. So they're going to be a much much improved football team this coming season. And at this stage, it's hard for me to make sense of who's going to be that number two team in the West Division, because I think Winnipeg is still number one until they are proved otherwise, right? The, you know, the specter of age is looming over them and and will bite them at some point, but uh, they haven't proven that they've, that they're ready to take a step back yet, right? They still have to be number one. After that, it's really a toss-up for me, right? All, all these teams in the West Division are talented, and I think many of them have improved. We'll see how it plays out here uh, in the next little bit. Two years in a row, the Elks have made a big splash in the receiving core. Ottawa, Bob Dace's team now. They've got Jeremiah Mazzoli. Look like he's recovered, and he's going to be their starting quarterback the Red Blacks made some nice signings last year. They added to the uh, roster this year. Are they poised to make some noise? I think they are, right? I, I thought they were going to be a much better team 
last year than they were. And and quite frankly, I think they would have been if it if not for that unfortunate hit by Garrett Marino that took Jeremiah Mazzoli out for the season, right? Now they were 0 and 4 at that point, but they'd been extremely competitive against very good teams. We saw how weak the rest of the East Division was. To me, they were they were probably better than the Hamilton Tiger Cats last season, except at the quarterback position. So they've added a couple more pieces, and Mazzoli's going to be healthy. I think they're a better team. The question for me is, where do they stack up? Because Toronto hasn't gotten worse, and Hamilton looks like they're much improved. Can Jeremiah Mazzoli be enough of a change maker at the quarterback position to elevate them above one of those two teams. And it's a possibility, right? We've seen that from Mazzoli in the past. Coming off an injury like that, it's going to be interesting to see how his mobility is, uh, how his recovery went. With modern medicine, you know, guys come back from all sorts of things and they look better than before, but you can never be certain until you see him step on the field. Montreal Alouettes, ownership still a topic of concern. The CFL has taken over the team, but this time I think on a very short leash that they are working toward a new ownership group. Got Park Lane working with the league. Uh, Part of their client list is Zoom, WHL, the NHL, a whole bunch of NHL teams, the San Diego Padres. So this is a a high-class organization that's ready to bring in the right ownership group to get the Alouette stable because that's a fantastic franchise to own. It's a great situation. They've just got to get the right people in place. Yeah, they really do. And and it's unfortunate uh, what went down there. You know, I I think I actually discussed it uh, previous time when I was on the podcast with you that I was never a big Gary Stern guy. Uh, You know, I was not a fan of some of his antics. I think that that diminished the team. And then obviously it's it's difficult for a franchise to be run effectively when 75% of it is owned by someone who is deceased, right? And and that was something that the league simply didn't have enough forethought to plan around, right? It's it's obviously tragic that Mr. Sid Spiegel's passed away, but he was 90 years old. It wasn't necessarily a shock. Um the estate managed that team for far too long and finally just threw the keys on the table, essentially. So finally the league stepped in, they took over ownership. Quite frankly, I don't think it was soon enough because had they done it even a week or two earlier, they could have stopped some of that bleeding in free agency. And maybe you see a Eugene Lewis and a Trevor Harris staying in Montreal. Cause I think both those players quite frankly wanted to, but just couldn't see any sense of financial security there. Um, we will get a new ownership group, I think, before the season. That's my sense. I think they're going to be closed. There are options out there. I don't know who's involved, but I've heard that it's going to move very rapidly. Hopefully, it will be a local group. In my mind, that is key. But most importantly, it has to be someone stable who's invested, right? The league can't have another situation where someone's owning the team for two years and then giving up. They need to have deep pockets. They need to be invested in that team and willing to lay out a a five-year plan and execute it because the team made strides on the field last year and off the field, right? President Mario Ciccini, I thought, did a fantastic job. One of many executives in the league right now who are like at the top of their game, doing some absolutely fabulous stuff, making moves in in markets where teams have struggled in the past. And I think he was on the right track. Unfortunately, the ownership group didn't think it was happening fast enough, right? They wanted financial returns right away. They had sort of pie in the sky ideas of what that franchise could do. Uh, It wasn't realistic. Thankfully, Chichini is back after being sort of unceremoniously let to walk uh, at the tail end of their their stint as ownership uh, as owners, um, and with the right guy ahead, uh, on top of him, he can do wonders for this club, and and hopefully they'll be in a much better situation this time next year. 
Couldn't agree more. He's going to have a great opportunity once there's stability above him. I commend the CFL. You need the Alouettes in the league. You cannot play without them. It really mucks up Winnipeg by shipping them back to the East. We lived with that for two decades. It doesn't work well. Ultimately, it's sort of, I've always looked at it as the, the Phoenix Coyotes. The NHL is adamant that that team is going to survive there. The CFL has to be the same with the original nine. They have to be adamant that each one not only survives, but thrives. I completely agree. And and quite frankly, the big three, and we always talk about the markets in, in Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal, and how they struggle and, and things like that, they're essential to this league. I know there are people on the prairies who say, ah, we don't need Toronto. We don't need Montreal. We can have, we love our football out here, as I know, but no one's paying a television contract for a, a league that's playing exclusively in Regina and Winnipeg, right? You need those big three markets because that's where advertisers want to spend the money. Without those teams, you don't have a CFL. So it's essential that those are on healthy footing. And you don't necessarily, it doesn't have to be a wild success, right? Something like Toronto, I have my issues with MLSC's ownership and maybe a a lack of investment sometimes or a a lack of understanding of what the CFL is. But I tell you what, their checks cash every single time. There is no worry about the Argos. Doesn't matter if there's two people in that stadium, the checks will cash they'll still be around because it's a rounding error on MLSC's uh, financial report. An ownership like that in that market is important. Montreal, I'd like to see them to have something like BC where it's local ownership. They can get invested. We've seen out here in Vancouver how impactful that can be when you have someone local who cares about it and connects with the community. I think you could do wonders with that in Montreal but you need someone who's willing to put in the time and the money to make that happen and isn't just looking for a profit next year so he can pag his pocketbook. JC Abbott of Three Down Nation, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. Awesome insight as always. Where can people follow you on Twitter and other handles? I'm mostly a Twitter guy. You can follow me at the JC Abbott on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, I believe coachjc.abbott on Instagram, but I don't post very much there. Twitter is the place to go. Thank you so much, and keep up the great work at 3Down. It's just a fantastic read. That website has just made uh, the CFL so much more available to everyone. Well, I appreciate you saying that. That's our goal. We want to be your number one stop for all the information, and we'll keep uh, giving it to you all off-season. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again at the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.